So our common practice and custom at San Harbor is to take a book of scripture and to work through it verse by verse, beginning to end. And so I have the audacity to preach through the book of Revelation. And so that's what we're going through. And I mentioned, someone said, you know, why are you preaching that? And well, part of the reason I'm doing that is because there has not been one book that has been requested more than this book. This book has been requested more uh, than any other book. What does it mean? When are you going to preach it? Uh, give us the right answers. And so I'm here now to give you the right answers. So this opening sermon in this series is going to be kind of an introduction, kind of laying out the uh, navigational tools we need to work our way through this book. And so for our scripture reading this morning, we're going to read the opening section of it, Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8. So Revelation 1, 1 to 8, hear now the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. Our good God and loving Heavenly Father, we know that apart from your divine enabling help through your spirit, the words of scripture will fall on deaf ears. So Lord, make us like good soil on which the seed of the word is scattered and which brings forth abundant fruit. Lord, help us to hear these words, to keep them, And Lord, help us to focus on the main thing that this book is about, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, since this is an introduction to Revelation and we're going to seek to understand the proper way to navigate this book, I thought I'd ask you some opening questions. What happens when you take Joe Biden's name, assign each letter a numerical value, add them together, and then subtract them from the median average of the numerical value of Kamala Harris's name? The answer is absolutely nothing but a waste of time. What would happen if you traveled to the city of Jerusalem on October 14, 2023, to witness the moon passing between the earth and the sun, causing another solar eclipse 177 days after the last solar eclipse? And notice that is a number that has two sevens in it, not just one. What's going to happen? What will happen is that you have paid a lot of money to go see something that you could have seen in America that has absolutely no bearing, direct bearing, on the events of Christ's return. And here's the most important question. What is a fair market price for post-rapture pet care insurance? 
And if you think I'm joking, there is legitimately an option for this for you. And the answer is zero dollars because how can you entrust an atheist to care for your children or your pets? Sorry. Revelation is a book that seems to attract people who have a love for charts, a craving for conspiracy, and an unhealthy hunger for certitude, to know exactly what this means and how it corresponds to that and when that is going to happen. And that is a danger because when we are faced with realities we can't explain and circumstances that we can't control, we often do things that give us a sense that we have regained control of our environment. So, for example, if a virus is coming or if a hurricane is coming, we can go and purchase a number of things because at least we have enough paper towel and toilet paper to, to last whatever is coming our way. Or if America is going to continue down its moral decay and decline, at least we can go to the book of Revelation and know exactly who the Antichrist is, exactly what the mark of the beast is, and exactly how the chart is going to play out. Because it gives us a sense of regaining control of things that we think are out of control. But notice that John the Apostle does not open the book of Revelation saying the secret code of Jesus Christ which he cryptically gave to me and I mysteriously give to you. Blessed are all who crack its code. Now granted, that is one extreme, but, but there is another that you're probably more guilty of. There's a group of people who have a sneaking suspicion that whatever revelation means and however you're supposed to interpret it, I'm pretty sure that's not the way. That, that seems a little crazy, but you read the book. You encounter all of its strange symbolism, all of its peculiar characters, all of its kind of quirky way of giving numbers, and you walk away confused or intimidated. And you say, you know what? Jesus wins, and I don't really care about the rest. Does it really matter? But notice that John doesn't open the book of Revelation saying, the obfuscation of Jesus Christ, which he unclearly gave to me, and I confusingly write to you, blessed are all who avoid its message. <laughs> Revelation was not written to scratch our itch for vain speculation, nor was it written so that we could be confused and intimidated by it and avoid it. In contrast to both of those extremes, Revelation opens and closes with an invitation. Revelation invites us in with the prospect of not just any ordinary invitation, but an invitation to experience God's blessing when we hear it and when we keep its message. So Revelation at the outset says, read and understand this book. If you want to experience more of the spiritual joy, more of the spiritual enrichment, more of the spiritual peace that flows to us from a right relationship with God and right living before God. Because that's what blessing means. Blessing means experiencing more of the joy and enrichment and peace that comes from a right relationship through right living with the true God. And so listen to this invitation in verse 1-3. You see it right there at the outset. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And John ends with that same invitation. Revelation 22-7. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So the opening and the closing to this book, to you is an invitation to experience divine blessing. So why am I preaching Revelation? Because despite all the confusion that can come with this book, 
despite all the controversy that swirls around this book, I am jealous for us to understand it and to experience the blessing that comes from keeping it. So in our inaugural message on this book, here is what I want us to consider. Revelation holds out to you the promise of blessing if you would hear and keep its message. So we need to know then what it means to hear its message accurately and what it means to keep its message faithfully. So you wanna know that blessing, you need to hear it accurately and then you need to keep it faithfully. So how do we do that? How do you hear Revelation accurately? How do you hear and how do you keep it faithfully? Well, to hear Revelation accurately and keep it faithfully, we must focus on its main character. We must focus on its main character. To avoid going all the way through the book and missing its central message, here's the maxim that we're going to live by. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. All right, that's the main thing about Revelation, to keep the main thing the main thing. And in order to do that, we must focus on its main character, to which we are introduced right at the outset of the book. Look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's who this book is ultimately, primarily, fundamentally about. The word revelation means to unveil, to disclose truths and realities that had previously been concealed or somewhat shrouded in mystery. Revelation is unveiling what has been concealed and it is disclosing what has been shrouded in mystery. So think of Revelation like the conclusion to a Chip and Joanna Gaines fixer-upper show, right? If you ever watched that, great show. They can remodel a home in an hour. It's amazing. (laughs) The homeowners have a sense that there is a great remodel going on. They, they know innately that something is going to change. Their, their home is being renewed. But before they see it, they stand at the kind of conclusion of the show before this canvas of what their house used to look like. And the canvas is blocking their view from seeing that final product, that concluding remodel work. And then they ask the question, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? And then they pull the canvas away. And what is revealed and unveiled is that renewed final made over home. Well, many realities are unveiled. Many truths are disclosed in Revelation, but the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing because Revelation ultimately, primarily, unveils the glory of Christ who is reigning now on his throne, who is returning soon, and who will renew all things for his glory. That's what Revelation is primarily about. And one way to understand Revelation is as the companion to the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ. In the gospels, Christ is revealed to us in his state of humiliation. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. That's the main point of the gospels. Now in Revelation, Christ is revealed in his state of exaltation. He is the lamb who was slain, but he is now the lion who's gonna conquer. He's the one who's worthy alone to open the scroll of history and execute and unfold all the events contained therein. And so in Revelation, we have unveiled in glory the conqueror see, hail the exalted deity. It is the companion to the gospel accounts who showed the humiliation of Christ, now showing the exaltation of Christ. So you can think of the gospels as having the central image of the cross, this image of shame and suffering, the central image of Revelation is a throne. 
throne takes center stage because it is the place from which Christ reigns and executes his perfect plan according to the counsel of his will. So when we focus on Christ, the main character, as we go through Revelation, here's what we should experience. We should tremble in reverence before his glorious majesty. We should be humbled by his heart-piercing analysis of our, of our own hearts and the church. We should be comforted by his sovereign rule over every single opposition, all enemies, and all injustice. We should find hope in his perfect execution of justice on sin and sinners. We should find security in his ultimate triumph and establishment of a perfectly renewed heaven and earth. And we should grow in delight over the ever-increasing nearness of his return and the marriage supper of a lamb that waits us. So that's what we should focus on. That's what you should keep central. And if none of that happens, either I need to be fired as a preacher or you need a spiritual hearing exam in Revelation because that's what the book is fundamentally and primarily about. Well, secondly, to hear Revelation accurately and keep it faithfully, we must see its mode of communication. We must see its mode of communication. Anytime you're handling a text, you're reading something, we innately recognize that the type of literature that it is determines how you're going to read it. So, for example, when you read Pilgrim's Progress, you innately recognize that it is an allegory. And thus, being an allegory, it helps you navigate through all of its characters, all of its places, all of its events. When you read Aesop's fables, you recognize that this is a fictional moral tale. They're short fictional moral tales. Animals don't really talk. Tortoises and hares don't really race. But it impacts how you read it, how you understand the lesson that it's giving you. Well, when we fail to recognize the type of literature that something is, we run into all sorts of problems. For example, when you read the Book of Mormon and fail to recognize that it is a work of fiction, you run into all sorts of problems. Or when you read a text from your wife asking you to do something and don't innately recognize that she's telling you to do something, you run in to all sorts of problems. So we need to recognize what type of literature it is so that we approach it and handle it properly. So what type of literature is Revelation? I think it can be most accurately categorized as apocalyptic literature, prophetic apocalyptic literature. Now, don't think the 1980s movies with Harrison Ford or something like that, the the chaos and confusion, but think of the book of Ezekiel. Think of the ending of the book of Daniel. Think of the minor prophet Zechariah and even some of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 24. You've encountered this type of literature before if you've read through the Bible. And what this type of literature is, is really a a kind of heightened, intensified form of prophecy that uses vivid visual imagery to help people see the unfolding course of history and how it's going to conclude. So that's what apocalyptic literature is, a heightened, intensified form of prophecy that uses vivid visual images to help people see the unfolding course of events in history and how they're going to come to a conclusion. So think of it like this. Paul, in his letters, writes with a logical pen. He's really trying to, he's trying to give you a sequence of arguments. David, in the Psalms, writes with a poetical pen. He's trying to get to the heart and the affections and the emotions. John, in Revelation, writes with a visual pen. He's trying to paint images on your imagination. And we're clued into this vivid kind of visual nature of the book 
in the opening two verses. Notice how John describes how this came to him. Look at verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So even in the opening verses of Revelation, John uses words that would point to our eyes as much as they would point to our ears. John saw it. He's showing it to us. And in fact, over 50 times throughout the book of Revelation, the phrase, I saw, and I saw, then I saw, and I saw, shows up over and over again. And usually in the prophets, we think, and I heard the word of the Lord, and I spoke it to you. But John emphasizes, and I saw, and I am showing it to you. John is using vivid visual imagery because in many ways, John's pen is a paintbrush and he's drawing images on our imagination, trying to help us see reality as it really is rather than it might appear to be on the surface of things. So one commentator put it like this, speaking of the symbols in Revelation. Revelation is a book of symbols in motion. What John has seen in his prophetic vision is the true character of events individuals, forces, and trends, the appearance of which is quite different on the physical observable plane. So one of the key themes of the book is that things are not what they seem. What appears to the naked eye on the plane of human history to be weak, helpless, hunted, poor, defeated churches of Jesus Christ prove to be overcomers who participate in the triumph of the lamb who was slain and conquers as a lion. What appear to be these invincible forces controlling history, like the military, political, religious complex that is Rome and its successors, is actually a system that has sown its own seeds of self-destruction, and it is already feeling the first lashes of the wrath of the Lamb. That is how the symbolism of Revelation works. It's helping us see what really is, not as it may appear to be. So let's, let's work out two examples. When we read Revelation 1.16, that Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, what question should we ask about that image? Should we ask, how did that fit in his mouth without cutting his lips? And I wonder what brand it is. Or should we ask, what does a sword symbolize throughout scripture? And what correspondence does a sword have to the word of the Lord? It cuts, it divides, it pierces, it judges. Well, think about also the use of numbers. That's a big one. I'm not going to get fully into that now, but we will get into it as we go. How should we think about the use of numbers in Revelation? So look at verse 1-4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And you look at verse or chapters 2 and 3, he writes letters to seven churches. Are there only seven churches in Asia Minor at the time? The answer is no, there wasn't. So does he only pick seven churches because he doesn't like the other ones? They're not part of his denomination. What is he doing? Or is the number seven, which represents throughout scripture, fullness, completion, perfection, being used to describe the fullness of the church that John is addressing? Or how about continue on in verse four? Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Seven spirits. Do we need to rewrite our doctrine of the Trinity and say one God in nine persons? Mm-hmm. Or do we understand the number seven to represent completion, fullness, perfection, like in the, the day, the creation account, like in the, the formation of a week leading to the Sabbath? 
And do we say that John is representing the Holy Spirit here in his sevenfold perfection, the complete fullness perfection of the Spirit? I think that's what we're supposed to do. And I think that's what we're supposed to look at these symbols throughout Revelation. So to hear and keep the message of Revelation, we need to learn to see the vivid visual imagery that John uses which in turn help us see reality as it really is, not as it may appear to be on the surface. More on that to come later in the series. Well, to hear Revelation accurately and keep it faithfully, we must not only focus on its main character, see its main mode of communication, but we must consult its Old Testament references. We must contest, we must consult its main reference book. When I was uh, an early driver, you know, my years, a warning light would come on on my car and on the dashboard, and I would call my dad right away and ask him, hey, dad, what is that triangle with the exclamation point in the middle? Or what's that genie lamp with the the water coming out of it? (laughs) And his answer was always the same. Go in the glove compartment, open the manual, and look it up and read it. So I don't call him anymore. I call someone else now. (laughs) I just, no, I go to the manual. I, I know now that those symbols are directing me toward this reference manual in which it will tell me what it is. Well, in a similar way, John has filled Revelation with hundreds upon hundreds of references and symbols and allusions and straightforward statements that direct our attention to the Old Testament. They're directing us to see in the Old Testament, especially the prophets, how all things are coming to their climactic conclusion in Christ. And so if, if John's pen is a paintbrush and he's drawing images on our imagination, then the palette in which he dips that paintbrush is the Old Testament, especially the prophets. And so you think of the, the symbolism and, and people get a little scared when you say symbolism because they think, well, can't you just kind of run wild and free with that? Well, you can, but when you understand that John is drawing those from the Old Testament and that they can't mean something that they haven't meant in the past, it kind of guards you. It's like the bumpers on a bowling lane. Like if, if you don't, if you're not a good bowler, you ask them to put up the bumpers. Well, the Old Testament and how those symbols have been used are the bumpers on the bowling lane that keep us from going in the gutter in Revelation. And so let me give some examples from our opening section. Look at verse seven of chapter one. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him Even so, amen. So keep your eye on verse 7 in Revelation and listen to Daniel 7.13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now look again at Revelation 1.7 and listen to Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So when John wrote Revelation 1-7 and you hear Daniel 7-13 and Zechariah 12-10, do you think he might have had those in mind? Do you think he might be directing us back to that section and that context in those prophetic books and wanting us to draw the connections to what's going on now? The reason I bring this up is because, sadly, the first reference book that most people consult when it comes to Revelation is either some self-professing prophecy expert 
or the Amazon Revelation bestsellers list or the nightly news. None of which I would recommend consulting, period. The first reference manual that you should consult when reading Revelation is the Old Testament, especially the prophets. Because John, I believe, self-consciously sees himself as a prophet writing a book of prophecy who is taking all the loose threads of Old Testament prophecy and he is weaving them together in their final completed form. That John sees himself as the final prophet standing on the precipice of the final stage of God's unfolding plan of redemption and he is showing how every loose end comes to its final conclusion. So think of it like a weaver on a loom. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever seen that. It's kind of an old school thing to do or, or quilting. But a weaver on a loom has all these pieces of yarn, these various pieces of yarn, and they're all kind of stretched out together. And all those individual pieces of yarn come together and are being woven into this beautiful tapestry. That's what John's doing. John is the prophetic weaver, taking all the threads of Old Testament prophecy and references and then putting together, putting them together in their final form. And we'll understand Revelation better when we trace those threads to their Old Testament roots and connections and see what was Daniel talking about in Daniel 7? What was Zechariah talking about in Zechariah 12? Why does he refer to the people of God using language from Exodus 19 and on and on? I'm going to try to model that as we go through this book. Well, finally, to hear Revelation accurately and keep it faithfully, we must understand its time frame. When? This is the great controversial question of Revelation, the question of when. When are the events of Revelation going to be fulfilled? When is John writing about? And it's a fair question to ask because there are time markers all over the book. In fact, we get two of them in the opening verses. Notice the first time marker in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. There's time marker number one. Then jump to verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And there's another one right at the end. So John kind of at the beginning and end of his book has these, these repetitions. Listen to Revelation 22:10, And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now, when is John writing about? What is he talking about? I think one way to understand this is to take note of my last point. We must consult its Old Testament references. So in Revelation 22:10, John is told, do not seal up the words of this prophecy for the time is near. That is a reference to Daniel 12. Daniel 12, Daniel gives all his visions, and as the book concludes, the Lord tells him, seal up the words of this prophecy, for the time is not yet. So Daniel gets all these visions of how the course of history is going to unfold, how things are going to take place, and he's told, but seal it up, for the time is not yet. John is given the opposite message. Do not seal up these words, for the time is near. Well, now, how does that help us understand the time reference? Well, I could bog you down in all the different views, all the technical names of how this phrase is understood. I could bore you with a long lesson that might confuse you. So what I want to do is I just want to go ahead and I'm going to give you the right answer right now, okay? Or at least what I do believe is the right answer. In telling us that the time 
is near, John wants every reader of Revelation to live with a constant sense of the imminence of Christ's return. He wants every reader of Revelation to live with a sense of the any momentness of Christ's return. John does not want us to be found asleep or idle or unprepared at Christ's return. He wants us to be watchful, to be faithful, to be alert, to be sober-minded, always living with eternity in view. Legend has it that Charles Spurgeon, he would wake up each day and he'd go to draw his curtains and he would look out the window and he said, today could be the day when my Lord returns. May he find me faithful. That would be a good model to live. I don't see, you don't have to draw your curtains. Maybe you have to lift them up or open them. That's what John wants us to live like. That's why he says the time is near. Also, in telling us that the time is near, John wants every reader of Revelation to know that we are living in the last days. The time of the end has begun. The final act of God's unfolding plan of redemption has commenced. We live after the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ. That was D-Day. What D-Day was to World War II, those events in Christ's first coming are to the unfolding plan of redemptive history. The cosmic conflict against sin and Satan and death has been dealt a decisive blow. And yet, if you know World War II at all, when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, when they won that battle, they won the battle that won the war, but it was not the last battle. It was not the final battle. It was the decisive one. V-Day still came many uh, about a year later. And so as Christians, we live between D-Day and V-Day. We live between the time when Christ dealt the decisive blow to his enemies at his first coming, but he's going to deal the final blow at his second coming, his return. And the time between those two times is the last days. We are in the last days now. There's nothing more that Christ needs to do to complete his atoning work. Everything that is needed to defeat sin and death and Satan has been done. And so we live in the now, but we live also in the not yet because Christ has not fully, finally forever instituted and brought in all the things that he won for us on the cross. And so we live in the tension of the now and the not yet, the last days between D-Day and V-Day. So right now, even though they have been decisively defeated, the nations are still raging. The peoples are still plotting. Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion. And yet Christ is ruling. Christ is returning soon. And Christ is making all things new. And so the wheels, I don't know if you heard this poem, the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. These are the last days. And one day is as a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years is as a day to the Lord. And so my view on the time frame that Revelation deals with is that it is not limited to one particular century. It is not limited to the first century and it is not limited just to the 21st century. Instead, what John is describing through visionary symbols is people and patterns that regularly occur throughout the time between Christ's first and second coming. When he describes the temptation of the harlot, he's describing a regular pattern of temptation that will occur to the church throughout the time between Christ's first and second coming. 
When he describes the false prophet who's spewing out lies and deceiving God's people, he is describing a pattern that will regularly occur throughout the time between Christ's first and second coming. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have particular application or particular connection to particular events throughout history. But it is also a pattern that has real and representative realities that we need to understand. And that means that the message of Revelation is as relevant to us today as it was to the original audience to whom it was written in the first century. So that's how we're going to navigate Revelation. Because it holds out this promise of blessing to us. It invites us in with this promise of blessing to those who hear it accurately and keep it faithfully. And to do that, we need to focus on the main character. Keep Christ the main thing. Revelation unveils the glory of Christ who is reigning now, returning soon, and renewing all things. We need to see its mode of communication. We need to allow the prophetic symbols to shape our perspective on reality as it really is, not as it appears to be on the surface. We must consult its Old Testament references. We must grasp all the threads that John is pulling together and see how they find their culmination in Christ. We need to understand its time frame. We live in the last days, and Revelation helps us understand what it looks like to live in a constant anticipation of Christ's second coming. Well, as we close this sermon, and as we go through the sermon series, I want to start a new, I guess you say, liturgical tradition, which is inspired by how John ends the book of Revelation. If you look at page eight of your bulletin, kind of a note page of our, of our bulletin, at the very bottom, I have this responsive conclusion, which John signs off in the book of Revelation. And I want to read the words in italics, and would you please respond corporately with the words in bold? And as we do this, I hope that this will help us anticipate the coming of our Lord and Savior. So I'll read the leader section. You read the words in bold. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our good God and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and wills that are pliable and tender towards you. Lord, cause your word to renew our minds and reshape our wills so that we live in light of your victory, in light of your triumph, in light of your current reign and your renewal of all things. Lord, help us to hold loosely to this, the things of this present evil age which are passing away and to cling to the things which are to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in response to this word, and in anticipation of what we want to experience in this sermon series, we're going to sing together on page 9 of your bulletin, Speak, O Lord. So would you please stand with me and turn there, and let's sing together.